the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Hello and welcome to the next installment of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. My name is Melissa. I am your American dental hygiene host. And my name is Tabitha. And as you can tell from my piercing accent, I'm from Australia. (laughs) Funny, you always talk about that, but I don't even hear it. I love it. And I've said this before, my theory is set on the Australian voice because I don't know, I just love the way you guys talk. Well, I always feel like uh, you guys don't use the word bogan, but I was like, we, we just sound so redneck in Australia. <laughs> oh, I don't feel like that at all. <laughs> it's like, oh, we sound so redneck. <laughs> no, that's perception versus reality right there, people. <laughs> that is not <laughs> I feel like you sound more like distinguished. Um, although I was in a meeting an international meeting for something else the other day and someone said you sound just like crocodile dundee and I was like that was not a compliment no (laughs) that movie was like such a big deal when I was a kid yeah I was very upset but we digress before we've even started the episode oh my gosh well it wouldn't be us if we didn't do this so thank you and welcome to our brand of crazy Thank you for listening to us and and laughing with us. Apparently, we are hilarious, which is good to know because sometimes I think I'm just weird and dumb. But um, we really appreciate all of our listeners. If you have been here with us for a while, because we are on season two, disrupting dentistry, and if you've been, you know, kind of coming on this journey with us, we are so appreciative of you sticking it out and listening to our crazy conversations. And uh, if you're new here, welcome. Please uh, let us know what you think of our fun little podcast here. And if there's anything that you guys, you know, we want to hear from you because we just kind of pick things that we're going to talk about based on what's going on in our professional lives, clinically, not clinically. Um, So if there's something that you guys want us to cover, please, you know, shoot us an email at disruptingdentistrypodcast at uh, gmail.com or send us a DM on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram at disruptingdentistrypodcast. And uh, yeah, reach out and share. Let us know what you're thinking. So today we're going to talk about an interesting topic and it's something that Melissa and I are really passionate about and both have lectured on and teach on a lot as well. We're going to talk about non-surgical periodontal therapy and we're going to talk about how it's changed and it's not recently changed. It's actually changed a really long time ago and that there's still a resistance within the community to acknowledge that change by um, older clinicians because newer clinicians aren't learning it. So that, you know, that resistance is there because they're just not learning it. But definitely clinicians that have been in the game for a while are having that resistance. So obviously many moons ago it was root planing and now it's root debridement. And we know that we don't want to remove cementum anymore. So we're going to talk about that today because I often see it in Facebook chats and rooms with people saying, you know, I only hand scale and they wear it like a badge of honour. Like I only hand scale every patient. All I do is hand scale and, you know, patients love it and it's great for patients of sensitivity. But in reality, you're actually creating more sensitivity and creating more problems for that patient with only hand scaling because we actually know that whilst, look, I still use hand scalers, I'm not going to lie, like I'm definitely using them, but they're not my go-to. Right. They're not the main use and I don't, and, there, and there's plenty of patients that leave without them being used on them. So um, we actually had a study that we can put a link into the notes as well and this one's from 2014, so it's not a new study and it's called time to shift from scaling and root planing to root surface to bridemen. And I think that it's really important that we note that it is from 2014 and that it is really important to be taking note that we've known this information for a really, really long time. And the aim of this study was to review the recent evidence showing that intentional removal of root cementum through root planing is damaging 
and no longer justified. Favoring a more minimally invasive approach such as root surface debridement and the conclusions of that study found that Many studies have shown that bacterial endotoxins do not penetrate the root cementum and can be easily removed with gentle brushing of the surface. The focus of periodontal treatment should be on biofilm removal. So this is an older study, so it actually talks more about ultrasonic um, instrumentation, um, about light pressure and how you can be just as effective. But obviously we've got other methods now for biofilm removal. You would just be using the ultrasonic for cement and removal only. And I'm going to say something shocking to some people. I don't ultrasonic the whole mouth. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. <laughs> I only ultrasonic where there's calculus. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's why I love that 1112 Explorer probe. Oh. That's like your little best friend when you're going to do minimally invasive periodontal therapy because you do need to check and you do need to see. And, you know, I wear loops as well and, you know, you are checking. But if they're like, so, you know, sometimes I do ultrasonic the whole mouth because there is calculus on every surface on every tooth and it requires right. it. Right. But when you've been patient in maintenance therapy and they're listening and they're coming back at the right intervals, I actually don't really use that ultrasonic much at all. And it's so nice because, again, it's using that critical thinking piece, following the science and being able to work smarter, not harder. There's there's tools and technology and then, again, the science to back this methodology up. But we very much, and I, I see this a lot in the U.S., we just get so stuck in legacy and culture. And this is how we've always done it. I mean, for Pete's sake, our coding still says scaling and replaning. Yeah. Right. Like I don't think ours does, but yeah. But I I think my shift in how I started treating patients when I first graduated, I always ultrasonic to the whole mouth, no matter what, because I was using my ultrasonic as well to remove biofilm, to remove staining, to do everything. So my my ultrasonic was doing a chunk of work. Absolutely. And then I always went back with my hand scalers and like went over it all with my hand scale. So that was just my routine. And then at the end I profied, but it was really, my profi was to make the patient feel like they got a service yeah. more than therapeutic. I will admit that like, because I didn't really understand the role of biofilm when I first graduated. No. Um, and, and that's because also like the training that we got, it wasn't biofilm focused. It was very calculus focused as well because we hadn't made the shift internationally as a profession into the understanding role that biofilm plays in that part of our career either. And when I started realising how important biofilm was and that biofilm removal is actually the goal of everything that we're doing and I started focusing so much more on biofilm and then calculus, obviously you want it off, but it was the second step, not the first step. Yeah, I think that I could start identifying the calculus a lot more effectively yeah. and really understanding where it is and how to remove it and and then not because I was really just doing a um a shoot and spray with my ultrasonic when I first I just hit everywhere and all <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and you know what it's it's going back to you know our research portion of our appointment right that's our assessments and if we're not doing that every time we come in like our patient comes in. I, I get it. Some clinicians only want to record it once a year. And technically by law here in the U.S., that's somewhat the standard. But patients should be probed every time they're in. Because, again, how do you know where to go if yeah. you don't know where everything is or, or the relativity? And, I mean, this is what we do, people. We live our life in millimeters. So we need to do that exploration first, that research. Like, you don't know where your instrument even needs to go and adapt if we're not taking in that information in the beginning of the appointment. Well. It's the map. It is. It's your GPS. Your probe is your GPS, without a doubt. And then when we have radiographs too, we're stacking. Like They should be layered on top of one another so that you really understand where you need to go and what you need to achieve during that time that you're working with your patient. And it is. It's it. It's, it's such a game changer when you make that shift in your head. And I mean, I would be the first to say it. When I teach, I tell people all the time, I was blessed to have this next level of technology. And I didn't even use it right in the beginning. I didn't start with the airflow because I was just it like 
worked against the core of what I was taught as a hygienist. And I couldn't, like I fought against it and I finally succumbed to it. And it was like, my brain just exploded. And I was like, why wasn't I doing this all along? You know? So it's, it's getting to that point where you realize there's a better way to do this. It's better for the patient. It's better for you as a clinician and the results are better at the end of the day. And I think I also started to really understand a lot more how to be minimally invasive with cementum. Yes. Because what do we know about cementum? We need it. It's 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 thin. There's not much of it, but it's vital and it's a really important structure. It's helping form part of that periodontal ligament that's helping with the attachment. And it's and when we're preserving that cementum, then we are reducing our recession and post-op sensitivity and long-term sensitivity, reducing our risk of root caries, and where it's more aesthetically pleasing. Like So it's like win, 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 win. When we're scraping away that cementum, we know that we're going to start getting recession and then we get all the other problems. And I think back to the beginning of my career when patients would ask me questions like that, like, don't these instruments kind of ruin my teeth? And we always think like, oh, no, enamel's the strongest structure in the entire human body. It's not possible. I'm not strong enough. I used to say things like yeah. that. And then, okay. um, but now we know. <laughs> now we know better. So it's, it's again, once you know better, it, it, it's not going to boom happen overnight, but take the steps to start doing better. Yes, because we know that um, cementum is about 20 to 50 microns thick. So it doesn't take much to remove it. And when we look at some studies at um, coronal cementum as well, we know that hand instrumentation removes the most amount. Like we all know that. It's proven in multiple, multiple studies. We don't need to... um, you know, look far to find them at all. And when you have a look at coronal cementum following subgingival instrumentation, you know, when we're using an ultrasonic, it's 84%. And when we use a hand curette, it's only 65% of the cementum remaining. So if you're doing multiple um, maintenance appointments for this perio, which we all know we don't do an initial and never do maintenance, and how often do you do one maintenance? Um, Never. It's right. <laughs> like, part of what we're telling them when they commit to active therapy yeah. is that you're going to have to be on a stricter maintenance protocol. Yeah, like you're going to see them more often. So you're hitting that cementum more. So if you're only leaving 65% after one instrumentation, it doesn't take many and you've removed the cementum. Mic drop. Yeah. So it's really important that we are not only thinking about what we take away but what we leave as well. So, yeah, we want to get rid of the calculus. We want to get rid of the biofilm. But our motto is, and Melissa says this all the time, do no harm. (laughs) So we've got to do it in the least invasive way possible. And that's, you know, when when we're doing periodontal therapy, we're no longer in preventative dentistry. We're in treatment. But we still need to be as preventative as possible. You know, we need to make sure that we're preventing, preventing, you know, damaging the dentine, removing cementum, and that we're being really careful. And, you know, in saying that, I do have hand instruments on my tray and I definitely have to use them sometimes. But for me, they're my last case resort. I couldn't get that with everything else. Now I'm going to try this. And I make sure that I've got a good range of um, tips for my ultrasonic as well, like with left and right um area site specific tips so you can get into more places because you know when you're using a nice thin long tip if you've got a patient that doesn't open wide getting to the distal of those upper molars is like going to hell so if you've got curved (laughs) instruments or something like that or you know retroclined lower anteriors uh, like you do need area specific you can't just treat every patient with one type of ultrasonic tip you do need a if you want to be using that it more in regards to using less hand instrumentation, then you need variety just like you do in your hand instruments. It's no different. Yeah, I absolutely love that point because that's that's one of the things that happens often in private practice is that, you know, we, we have to go to the dentist to ask for these supplies to be purchased, right? We don't have the buying power within the practice, yet they don't do what we do. They don't understand 
the challenges that we have to the extent, I mean, they get, they have the same challenges when they're working in a small mouth on, you know, number 15 and they're trying to prep a tooth and it's not easy to access, but they're using brand new drills to, or burrs rather, to cut down that tooth. They're not reusing like an 1157 burr over and over and over again because it's no longer efficient. So helping them understand, like we not only have to educate the patients, but we also have to educate our dental team and and whoever's in charge of purchasing the equipment that we're using because they don't know what they don't know. And you, my friends, are the expert in oral health disease therapy and prevention. There is no other person in that practice, not an office manager, not a dentist, unless you have periodontists that you're working with, nobody else. And and I would still challenge that even. Nobody knows what you know. Nobody does what you do. You are the expert. And I think we've spoken about this on a previous episode that this is one of the times where it's good to negotiate for a year what a budget will be for your room for, for yeah. consumable like replacements, so like tips and instruments, because you shouldn't have to go and beg, borrow and steal every time you need one thing. It just becomes exhausting for everybody. So it should just be, well, look, we see, you know, things last this long, like tires on your car, they do not last forever. They need to be replaced. And just like when we have a car, we think, okay, well, registration and insurance and servicing and the and the tires will cost me this much each year. So you budget in your overall budget that the maintenance of that car is going to cost this much. Your hygiene preventative care room is no different. Absolutely. It will need replacement of ultrasonic tips. It will need replacement of hand scalers. It will need different materials. So why not just say, okay, well, it costs this much. You know, we know that an if you know how many cycles the ultrasonic tip will go through and we expect to use this many patients need this, all right, well, let's budget this many ultrasonic tips every year. Right. And okay. then instead of discussing it every time, you can just go to the front desk and go, out of my allocation for the budget this year, I need to order this and this. Wouldn't that be, I mean, it's such a simple resolution to an age old turmoil of an issue because, and that's what leads to burnout and frustration for us because we're trying so hard to achieve something that you just cannot achieve with the the tools that are in your hands. And then the patient has a awful experience because you're trying to remove deposits with something that doesn't work anymore. So what are we we doing for them? Like, what are we, we're not serving them any longer. And I'm going to say something a little bit controversial now. But if you do go to your boss and he says you can't have this budget and he wants to run your room on an oily rag, he wants to spend nothing and make everything, find a new job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds really harsh, but do you know how in demand we are at the moment globally? Yes. Yeah. Find a new job. You know, I, I just had oh, someone okay. reach out to me recently that they were like, well, this isn't really my dream office, but I'm thinking that, you know, if it's, if it's temporary, I can hang on. And I was like, I can't answer that for you, but I can tell you that we are in so much demand that you don't need to yeah. settle. You don't have to settle right now. And it's not easy. I mean, I just went through it. I'm, I'm with my practice. It'll be a year at the end of January. So I just freshly went through it. So I know it's not easy. Like there were times I was working in this new operatory, trying out a practice. And I'm thinking to myself, what did I give up to work in this like shithole right now? Because this is a shithole. <laughs> and look yeah. what I'm trying to accomplish with garbage instruments. And, you know, I even had one practice that I said to them, I said, and the office manager said, she goes, listen, I know the hygiene uh, department is, is antiquated and old, and we will give you a budget for instruments. We know it needs a whole revamping. So we're, we're kind of holding on to when that person comes on our team, they're going to order what they want. I'm not going to just going to order instruments and then they not be right. But then when we were negotiating moving forward and I gave them the list of everything I wanted. And they did their research and saw how much it was going to cost. They were like, they re- rescinded their offer. Yeah. So, and it was fine. I wasn't upset about it. I was like, you know what? Not supposed to be there. It's okay. We're not seeing eye to eye. I'm not going to change. You're not going to change. You do you. I'll go over somewhere else and do me. Well, the thing is, if you're working with instruments that are blunt, that, um, you know, we've lost working length. So if you lose working length on an ultrasonic tip, what do you lose? You lose time, you lose efficiency, and you lose comfort for the patient and yourself. Right. But you also aren't doing the patient any justice because if you have a look at this study here that was, um, so this one said influence of tip wear of ultrasonic scalers on root surface roughness. 
And so this one was um, looking at the influence of TIFF wear of the ultrasonic scale on root surface roughness. And what it found was is that when you have a tip that's worn down, you actually increase the roughness of the tooth. So Mm -hmm. we're actually doing the patient a disservice when we're using equipment that is worn too much. So we're increasing that roughness. And then one of the conclusions that that study found was is that just as a part of angulation and pressure, the length of your ultrasonic tip played a role as important as those two things. So your technique and the quality of the instrument were equal in their importance. And so that's something to really think about. Like even with a skilled clinician, you can't do it well if you're working with crap. And um, I'm going to say something. This is a really crass saying, but it's a bit of an Australian saying. You can't um, make a chicken salad out of chicken shit. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It is true. And and the shit rolls down, people. That's another. (laughs) The shit rolls down. You can't be expected to be this clinician that's doing amazing work when you've been given nothing amazing to do it with. (laughs) Yeah. Like it just doesn't work like that. You need to have quality instruments and quality stuff to do it with. And also not only just to provide your patient with the care, but to feel good within yourself because it doesn't feel good when you're working with crappy stuff and you're not happy with the results that you're giving. And then you end up getting burnt out and feeling crappy and, and jaded. And you go from that optimist to that pessimist in the surgery. Of course, no and, then, and then the let's we haven't even touched on the ergonomic and muscular skeletal issues that that then yeah on your body. So that's another piece of it. So it's not it's not working for anyone who's involved. It's not working for the patient. It's not working for the practice, and it's not working for you as a clinician. And one of the things that we need to realize is that a lot of the problems that we have, and this is a little bit controversial too, and I say this with love because I've been there and done it myself. A lot of the problems that we have, we've we've created them. We've allowed Mm -hmm. them to happen. We've gone into agreement with the office that it's okay to let me work with these garbage instruments. It's okay to let me provide care in 40 or 45 minutes, even though I know it's not standard of care. It's okay to go into agreement with the patient that they have active perio, but I'm going to do a profi because that's what they want. And a lot of that falls on our shoulders. So one of the things, excuse me, that Tabitha and I are so passionate about and that the basis of this podcast is to inspire other people through the trials and tribulations we've already went through to help you kind of skip over them through our mistakes and and help you get to a better place in your career so you don't have to deal with these, you know, the the feelings of... I'm I'm busting my ass, but I'm not getting anywhere with these patients or I'm done working for the day and I'm like shaking my hand because it's numb and I can barely feel my fingers and I have my heated steering wheel on to help get circulation back in my hand or that you can't find a comfortable position to sleep at night because your body hurts so bad. Like these are, we've done this to ourselves already. And if we can prevent one clinician from going through that, then win-win. This is why we do this. Yeah, and I think you need to think about too, like so um, clinicians that are feeling resistant. So some of the things that I see online or people say to me is, you know, I can get deeper with my hand scaler than I can with my ultrasonic or I can do a better job with my hand scaler as I can with my ultrasonic. But the science doesn't show us that and that's just you feeling comfortable with that technology and maybe needing to upskill or just learn to be more comfortable with with other technology because when we look at penetration depths of ultrasonic scalers versus hand instrumentation um, there was another great study done this was published in the journal of clinical periodontology in 2008 and it had a look comparing ultrasonic scalers and hand scalers and in the periodontitis group the ultrasonic tip reached significantly deeper probing depths than gracie curettes And the slim ultrasonic tip of the study that they showed showed a deeper penetration depth in untreated inflamed periodontal pockets irrespective of the pocket depth when compared to Gracie curettes. So we can actually, you know, depending on the tip that you're using, if you're using a short fat tip, 
no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> like, you right. know, using a long, slim tip that's appropriate, ones shaped. You know, when you're using those nice, long, thin ones, those perio slims that you can get into more areas, then you're actually going to get deeper and have better access than you can with your um, Gracie curettes as well. Right, right. So it's about knowing that you can adapt it, but using the correct tip and the tip for that area because you can't have the one tip that does everything. It's not a one-size-fits-all. No, it's definitely not. And, and you know, looking at things like how are they shaped and, and what yeah. you can feel with, you know, your your assessment instruments, like Tabitha mentioned her 1112 probe or like a traditional probe, like, you know, you can palpate calculus with a traditional probe yeah. and your adaptability with that because it's so long and thin often is better than a Gracie scaler. Like I, I've been doing non-surgical pyrotherapy and I'm like, I know there's calculus there, but I cannot get my Gracie down and underneath yeah. it but as I progress as a clinician I I've changed my approach from like a, a, you know more to like macro down to micro like my instruments are my last resort if I wasn't able to achieve complete removal with my my um, biofilm management tool and then also my my piezon tool yeah. so you know it's it's just kind of changing that mindset which i'm going to it's not easy it's totally not no. easy when you're taught to do it a specific way and then you spend the majority of your career working that way and it's a little bit of self reflection it's a little bit like hey does that mean i was shit all the other years i was doing it the other way i feel that feeling <laughs> And yeah, you kind of were, but again, you were doing the best you could with the knowledge you had and the technology you had at that time. So there's no reason to beat yourself up. There's no reason to feel badly. It's just when you know better, you do better. And that's it, you know? And that's the same conversation you can have with a patient because that's what I hear a lot of times too. Even when you kind of shift gears from like everybody gets a profi, 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 to starting to integrate more of a periodontal based protocol in your in your practice. Well, what are the patients going to say if six months ago I gave them a cleaning, my favorite C word, and um, now they're in and I'm telling them I'm, I'm diagnosing perio because we're being more aggressive with be- bleeding points and pocketing. Just tell them that the science, like the science has changed. Our knowledge yeah. base has changed. Blame it on that, you know? It, it, not blame, but use that to your advantage and help patients. Like you, you might not get them at appointment one. You might not get that commitment at appointment one. I often will say to them, you know what? Here's what I see today. I know bleeding indicates active disease and it's not just disease in your mouth because periodontal disease is a medical disease with a dental therapy. So I can help get this disease into remission, treating you with non-surgical periodontal therapy, but it's going to take a commitment from you And I'm not going to enroll you into this therapy until we're going to get your home care regimen, your self-care regimen. I'm trying to retrain myself to say self-care because patients understand self-care, like meditation, eating right. That's all part of self-care. Dental health and and their maintenance, what they're doing at home, it falls in that category. So I'm trying to retrain my brain right now on that. But until I get that self-care commitment from you, I don't want to enroll you in this treatment because we're not going to get the results that we need if you're not doing what I need you to be doing at home with. This is a teamwork approach. 80% of the result is going to be what you're doing at home to maintain the biofilm levels in order to achieve a good result and put this disease in remission. So until we're there, we're not going to do it. I'm going to give you three months. Let's see what you could do with your home care in three months. We're going to reassess and see where we are next time you come in. So it's not like if you get that pushback from a patient, because they kind of look at at it sometimes as that hard sell, right? They're like, how come I've been okay with this and okay with this and okay with this? And now all of a sudden you're telling me I need this. COVID is also a great segue to that because people have fallen off the radar and not come in for a year and a half, if not two years. So yeah, you can't do, you're not a superhero as much as we are. You know, we like to say we are and we do amazing things. I mean it in the sense that you can't achieve what someone didn't do for two years in 60 minutes or less. And we put this pressure on ourselves all the time to do it. And that's, again, another level of burnout that we do to ourselves. We put these really unrealistic expectations on ourselves. Patients have to own their disease. I've totally digressed from what we were speaking about. (laughs) But it is true. Ownership of health is really, really important. I had a, a patient last week that just busted my balls is the only way you can say it. Like she just, <laughs> man, 
Like at the end of the appointment, I actually said to the receptionist, so she can see anyone but me. <laughs> and then I actually told the other hygienist I work with afterwards that I did it. But when I took her to the front desk, I said to her, so Sarah, that's the other hygienist, she works Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And then I walked away. <laughs> But she is a long-term perio patient that doesn't want to take ownership of her health. And she, um, you know, she hadn't turned up for six months. She was meant to come back three months later. Didn't look like she'd brushed her teeth once in the six months. There was so much biofilm, so much calculus. Gums were inflamed and bleeding. We were in active disease again, generalised eight millimetre bleeding, probing depths. And I'm explaining it all to her and I'm showing her a disclosed mouth. And then she's like, how did this happen so fast? And I'm like, it didn't happen fast. It's been happening for years. And then you disappeared for six months. I said, nothing here was fast. And then she's, and then she said to me, um, I didn't go to the dentist for 10 years and nothing happened. I'm like, you're at a perio practice. Mm. Something happened. <laughs> and like, you wouldn't be here if that were the case I gave her oral hygiene instructions like 10 times and she must have asked like 10 times but how did it happen I'm like in the end I wanted to say it the same way I explained 10 times but like so I'm trying to find different ways to explain it and then I eventually just had to say to her look you're going to have poor periodontal outcomes because you don't want to take any ownership in this situation and you want to put all the blame on us here but we didn't see you we can't be responsible when you're not here yeah yeah, or said, not, so, we can't. We also can't be responsible for what you're not doing at home. Yeah, and so I said to her, if you want good outcomes, you have to take ownership and responsibility for what you do at home. And because when I was writing back to her general dentist, I just said, patient has lack of ownership of health, lack of commitment, and poor health outcomes expected. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. it's my job to keep trying to motivate her. There was other reasons why I didn't want to come back in. She was just quite rude. So I was just palmed her back to the other hygienist because it's her usual patient. But um, I was like, you can have her back. And she's like, I tried to give it to you. And I'm like, no, 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 she's yours. She's yours. Like, take it's like volley. Nope. Pop the, the joy of being in a practice with multiple hygienists when you can. Because, you know, sometimes she gives me patients and we get along okay. Or sometimes I give her patients and they get along okay. But this one. Right. No one wanted her. And, um, but it, ownership, you know, we talk a lot in, you know, you and I lecture a lot and we give lots of classes on us levelling up, on us doing better. But at the end of the day, ownership of health is super important and we can't own the problem for the patient. We can only own what we have to do and what we should do, but we can't own what that patient has to do. And I say to patients all the time, we all know I'd love to be the star of the show, let's be honest, okay? But I'm not. It's you. Yeah. You're the star of this show. And if you don't do the work, I can't in this once every three, every six, every 12 months, whatever the rotation is that we're seeing, because sometimes we're doing shared care because they can't afford to come as much. So, you know, I'm not seeing them as much as we would like to, but we're doing what we can. But I'm like, I can't pick the slack for everything. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. Can't, and you sure do that. No, and, and you shouldn't. And that, again, that, that goes back to the burnout. So yeah. our instruments play a giant role in our the care we're providing, our mental, our own personal mental well-being, our physical well-being, because we can't achieve this optimal result with garbage. Yeah. No, it's you well, can't. can't. Garbage in, garbage out. If you have yeah. garbage to work with, that's what you're going to produce, garbage. So um, I found this this uh, little bit of information, too, to kind of break it down. And, yes, I'm not good at math. That's why I chose dental hygiene because I didn't want to do math. But um, I'm with you. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you kind of – sometimes we have to kind of break it down, right, and speak the language of dentists because it, it goes down to the dollars and cents with them often. So if we want something, we have to kind of – realize what motivates them and how to sell it to them too. So um, if you look at the volume of patients you're seeing and how, you know, what your instruments are, the health of your instruments that you're using. So when a working end in this article, it said uh, when the working end loses 20% of its length or width, then that's um, at the time where you're going to want to replace them. Yeah. So if you're looking at the cost, like most instruments are about $55 an instrument. So if you're telling your doctor, oh, I need all new instruments, like, yeah, that's going to add up and it's going to be pretty significant. But according to this article, it says 
per scaler will cost about 11 cents per use. And if you've got about five scalers in your, your cassette, yeah. that's about 55 cents per patient. When you break it down to that, um, and then they're talking about the average cost for a profi cup and paste is about 65 cents per patient. We don't want to go there. We want to look more of a, a, a more optimal way of biofilm management. So if you break down that cost, I think um, the piezon per use, do you know what, what the figure with that? I don't know what the airflow per use is. out right now, but you yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be nice to know. It's not so, much. Yeah. It isn't. It's a lot less. I mean, when you look at the total package of, of integrating something like GBT into your office, there's sticker shock associated with that. I think it's about 30 cents. Per patient total yeah. for GBT? Uh, so, no, 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 for an ultrasonic. I don't know about the GBT in American dollars. I think I worked out ages ago when I was doing my GBT, when I wanted to look at it per patient, I think it was costing me about $5. $5 per patient. Yeah. Okay. Which is like nothing. No. It's <laughs> Considering what we charge. <laughs> right, right. So like if you break it down like that, that's a more digestible financial number yeah. for a doctor, right? Because it's like, yeah, when you come at them and say, hey, I learned about this technology. It's so amazing. I want to manage biofilm. And you're like, oh, fired up and excited to do it. And then you tell them, yeah, it's going to cost you $15,000. And they're like, what? Are you kidding me? You've been doing hygiene this way for so long and the results are fine, right? Because again, we're not leading with the science. We're just coming at them with the dollar amount. But if you say it, it's generally about $5 per treatment per patient, the elevated patient experience, the less time I'm spending doing a debridement, the more comfort for the patient, the more time I have to educate my patient about possible restorative things that help get patients into your chair. Um, you know, th th the list goes on and on. Our ROI is tremendous. That's not even discussing the systemic health benefit that this treatment has in reducing other health risks. So it just... It's, it's tremendous. But when you speak the language of doctor, I know it's a big investment, but it ends up being $5 per patient. You know, that's, that's more digestible for them. So, and, and we're responsible. Like they, I, I'm really tired of that set it up and forget it mentality for hygiene. Like the instruments, you know, and when my graduates leave, I said, listen, one of the parts I want you to investigate with when you go on an interview Ask to see the room you're going to be working in. Open up the drawers. Look at the instruments. Look at the packs. What's in there? If you can't identify what the scaler looks like or the scaler is so old that it was probably born before you were, that's not something that you want to be working with. And if you negotiate right from the start, like you mentioned earlier, Tabitha, an instrument budget, yeah. get it in writing. Get it in writing. Yes. Because get everything in writing. Talk is cheap. Always get things in writing. Talk is cheap. <laughs> Get it in writing because then yeah. this way you you're setting yourself up for success and you're also creating a precedence with that practice that th listen I'm going to work hard for you and this is going to be successful I'm not going to take your shit so don't blow smoke up my ass and promise me the world to get me in the door and then when I ask you for the things we discussed you give me a hard time and push back on it so yeah, because we we're very cheap rooms to run at the end of the day even when you stock it properly right. Right. But, you know, when we when we do it properly, we have better patient care, better patient satisfaction, better clinician satisfaction. Happier clinician means happier life around the practice. And you're going to keep staff retention for much longer as well. And you're going to have a more fulfilling career. So Absolutely. it really is just like, how do you not understand that, like, Buying this stuff is really important. <laughs> right, right. And it also is a way for the you to separate yourself in your local market because not a lot of, like when, when we talk about things like GBT, not a lot of practices here in the U.S. have really taken hold to this yet. There is momentum and it is changing, which is amazing, and I love that. But um, that's a way to really, like, advertise yourself in your own market, that you're doing this differently. Like, dentistry needs to change. We are so overdue on change, you know, medical science. And let me tell you something, the, the, a lot of physicians are realizing this connection yeah. and they're having different conversations with their patients so that the gig is up and the accountability is finally going to be present. I mean, there's companies that are starting to offer directly to consumers tests to identify the pathogens in their mouths 
and and then give them recommendations based on the outcomes of those tests. Yeah. So like the, the technology and the DNA sequencing, like it's all here. Like it's happening. I was recently talking with a university who is developing a chair side saliva kit that will find out someone's risk of perio from it. So we can tell them if they're an increased risk before they get it. So we can be the true prevention specialist, which how cool is that? I was like, oh my God, that's so exciting. Like um, at the moment they have the ability to do it, but it's not easy. Like it's not cheap and you can't just easily do it. You'd have to send it to labs and stuff like that. So the technology now is to make it accessible so that it can just be a quick test and it's and the results are done next to your chair side rather than sending to a lab. So I thought that's pretty cool. Which is amazing. Like could you imagine if imagine if it ends up being almost like a pH like litmus yeah. test where you just stick it in their mouth and, and in a machine and it boom gives you a, a reading well, right then and there. I then you could ask questions, how young could you do that? Because then you could be like, well, you know, is this something that we start doing at the five year old checks or something like that, where we're looking at this risk really early on and then you know, we know we've identified you as a high risk for this. And so we're going to be really, you know, talk about how important everything is from an early age of you getting it right, because we know that you've got this susceptible um, risk. Epigenetics, man, that's where it's at. Yeah, That's where we're moving to. Get on the train now, because if not, it's going to leave the station without you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's very, very interesting. There's so much um, science coming out, but Going back to, because we've digressed so much, going back to the hand scaler versus ultrasonic, <laughs> which is which was the theme of the topic, but we've gone everywhere. We've, you know, we're on a zigzag train. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, when we look at surface roughness as well, there's many studies, um, you know, that are over 20 years old and, and, and older comparing that surface roughness from a hand scaler to an ultrasonic. And we can see increased surface roughness with all Gracie curettes compared to all ultrasonics. So it is really important that we're thinking minimally invasive all the time. And we're thinking about, okay, if we haven't been able to prevent this, because that's our number one plan, prevent perio, prevent decay. But if we haven't been able to prevent perio and we have to go into treatment because we're no longer in prevention, now we're in treatment, then, okay, what's the most minimally invasive way but the way that we're going to get the best results for the patient? And that's what we have to look at. And I think my big motto in everything at life is a risk versus benefit ratio. I always say, yes. what's the risk versus benefit ratio of this? And that's and now my eight-year-old says it to things. <laughs> the other day he said oh to God, me, what would be the risk versus benefit ratio of um, a shark attack right now me swimming in the beach? I was like, get in the beach. But anyway. <laughs> but because I say it all the time you know what would be the risk versus benefit ratio of this because I think every time we look at a patient that should be the thing we ask ourselves when I'm deciding on a treatment plan when I'm recommending a product when I'm deciding on the like when I'm what I'm doing the treatment what's the risk what's the benefit what's the ratio because we should always be coming out with a better a better you know a win should always be a win you know when we're getting that, when we're trying to get that periodontal debridement, we want to do it with the least risk of having recession, the least risk of having sensitivity, the least risk of promoting root caries because we've got that recession. We want to do the least damage and get the best results. Absolutely. And and we got to think as a, think comprehensively too, like statistically, what are the outcomes of our care? How many times have you, using your traditional approach, had to repeat non-surgical care for a patient because we we might have initially gotten a good response but then the patient backslides back to where they were and we have to then repeat initial therapy because we're back in active disease again and that has a lot to do with the tools and technology and the approach that you're utilizing so kind of reevaluating that and seeing you know not only are we removing you know cementum and causing some long-term damage to the patient's dentition, even though it's iatrogenic and that's not our intention, but that's what we're doing. And then are we even having success on top of it? And I think, and what is success? Um, Yeah. And I think the other thing we need to always say is, you know, ultrasonics and hand scalers, both of them are for hard deposits. They're not there for anything else. They're there for hard deposits. We should never be removing biofilm with a hand scaler. 
So, um, you know, it's really corny, but we've all probably had a Teflon pan at some point in our life. So if you cook spaghetti in the Teflon pan, at the end of the night, you're not going to get a good knife and scrape the spaghetti sauce out of the bottom of the pan and scratch up the Teflon. You're going to get a sponge and wash it out really easily and, and then we're done. Well, if you try to remove biofilm subgingivally with a hand scaler, it's the same thing. You're going in there and you're scratching up a Teflon pan to remove something soft. It's it's that same right. kind of concept. And that's why we have to make sure that we are being minimally evasive and using the right instruments because that is not the right instrument for biofilm removal. We don't need that. And then going back to what you were saying, Melissa, with success, success for me in a perio patient is not only achieving health, but doing it in the best way possible in the fact that we aren't getting that recession and we aren't getting that sensitivity because we want to have health as in real health, you know, not having other complications from being able to get there. So I think that's the other thing too is that that success comes in different forms and I want to reduce my pocket depths by having reattachment and having a reduction in the pocket, not from recession reducing the pocket. You know, there's two different ways to reduce right. pocket depth and you have to think about that each time. Which way do you want to reduce pocket depth? I don't want to reduce pocket depth through recession. That's not my aim. Right. Well, yeah, that's not success. Look, sometimes it is. Like, you know, after surgery, definitely in cases like that, we always will get some recession after that. But the majority of cases, I don't want recession. Right. Right. No, because that's that just opens up a whole nother can of worms for the patient and it makes their case harder to manage for them at home and harder for us yeah. to manage clinically as well. And we can yeah. we can reduce that. Like we have a way now to reduce that. And that's what makes it exhilarating, but then also simultaneously frustrating when people don't wanna come down that road. And I think you need to think about too, like if you've got a patient that's super sensitive because they already have a lot of recession. Don't get in that catch-22 where you keep hand-scaling because they've got recession because you think this will be the least sensitive option, but then you're creating more issues and more recession and, and, you know, you're recontouring the roots and and you're doing more damage. All right, maybe they just need to be numbed up so you can appropriately clean and not do more damage. And think about different desensitizing options. You know, we had a great episode with Kathy where she talked about the benefits of non-staining silver fluorides that aren't going to turn the teeth black. Right. But you can give that patient really good results for their hypersensitivity. So do you want to be thinking about some silver fluoride treatments, getting them out of pain for those patients that have that that are hypersensitive, and then going in and being able to use proper instrumentation because we've been able to fix those patients that are that are sensitive to everything and just suffering. Yeah. You know, do we want to look at fluoride varnishes or something different so that we can really help reduce that sensitivity but be able to do our job properly? Or do you just simply need to numb up parts of the mouth so that they can handle it and have the correct use? Because not only is the ultrasonic better for calculus removal, as in, you know, we're going to shatter that calculus, it's going to remove it, but we're lavaging the area and flushing it out as well. So if you're not using any kind of water and you're just hand scaling, you're not getting that lavage benefit, which is really important as well for really flushing out those endotoxins and helping clear it up. So I definitely noticed when I started my career in those patients that bullied me into hand scaling only. The inflammation doesn't reduce on them in the same way. Mm -mm. And you don't get the same results. No. And that's the beauty of the technology that we do have available to us. Use your intraoral camera, take those pictures be able to compare from appointment to appointment to see, you know, is there any change in the tissue texture and quality and color, you know, like those are things that are indicate, indicate if we're having success or not having success, you know, cause a lot of times yeah. we're literally spitting in the wind and we're just managing disease from getting a little bit worse. We're not actually being successful with treatment. And so, you know, it's the definition of insanity doing something over and over again, but expecting a different result. We're not going to get it. You know, and, and yeah, sometimes it's just easier to, okay, I'll hand scale you, Mrs. Jones, because you don't want to hear a bitch and complain, you know, or deal with her jumping around the chair the entire appointment. And, you know, I get it. We've done it. I know. 
But like Tabitha's right. Sometimes like if nothing changes, nothing changes. And we have to say, Mrs. Jones, you know what? I know that I've been doing this for you and I know it's not working. And I know it's not working because I see bleeding. Here's your periodontal charting. Here's the areas of bleeding. This is something that concerns me because now these microbes have a gateway to get into your body. And each time your heart pumps, it's traveling through your body to different organ systems. And these are the things that your medical history shows me that you have a family history of Alzheimer's dementia. These microbes have been linked to that. So in order for us to manage this better and reduce those risk factors that you have, we need to utilize this technology. So how can we do this and keep you comfortable? So I can provide you with optimal care, but you can be comfortable during the treatment because I don't want you to be uncomfortable while you're in my chair. And it's an easy way to turn that conversation around. Now, all of a sudden, they want something from you that you that they haven't allowed you to give them, right? And just think about too, like, your body can't handle you hand scaling every patient. That is no. horrific. No, like, that is that is how you get problems with your hands and your wrists and your body, and that's just horrible. I'm gonna, uh, you know, go off a little bit too. I just love it that you quoted Albert Einstein, and my quote was, "You can't make chicken salad with chicken shit." So yeah, it's really the same, same thing, same word. I was like, her. she's quoting Albert Einstein, and I'm just saying crass quotes, but. <laughs> But you know what? That's what our listeners love about us, that we curse and we're real. <laughs> Just very Australian. <laughs> it's all good. That's why we're a lot. But it is, it, it is true. Like we have, I actually use that quote a lot in some of my um, motivation presentations. And it really is like if things aren't working, we have to look at, all right, well, that message isn't working. How do I change this? How do I do it differently? Because doing the same thing over and over again, it, it isn't working. So you're no. just going to frustrate yourself and you're not going to get the results. And we do need to sometimes think, all right, well, it didn't work this way. How do I change it? And how do I do this? And what's a different way of approaching this maybe? Because that's our job. Yeah, it is. End of day, that is our job. So I hope that yeah. we've we've left you with some good tips that, you know, we always want things that we share to be implementable, that you could bring back to your operatory or surgery, um, and, and be able to have better results. So if you are, if there's anything that we've shared with you guys that you've changed in your own practice and you've seen success, please let us know because we want to celebrate with that with you. That's freaking amazing. And, um, you know, just share again, please feel free to reach out to us. If you've got something specific that you want to, you know, something you're struggling with that you would like to kind of share with us and see how we can kind of put our brains together and work it out. We would love to be able to, to help you out with that. So reach out to us on Instagram, reach out to us via email. Again, it's disrupting dentistry podcast at gmail.com. Um, please leave us reviews because we love them and it helps other uh, dental professionals get to find us in the whole world of algorithms that again, I don't understand that either, but I know that the more you guys like us and subscribe and share, the better that that magical algorithm yeah. unicorn works behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much. And thank you to all our listeners. Um, we'll have some more episodes leading up before Christmas, but we'll be soon announcing what break we'll have over Christmas as well. And, um, yeah, as we get to the very crazy season, it always seems to be so busy in dental practices leading up to Christmas. Yes. Um, you know, take care of your bodies and yourself. And thanks for listening again. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Keep on disrupting. Hey, thank you again so much for tuning into the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We love to hear from you viewers and we love that you join us for our episodes. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave us a review. We love reading reviews from all over the world. It's one of the things that actually makes all the hard work feel really worth it when we get to see which episode you're enjoying or some feedback that you give. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or write something on our Facebook or our Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Keep on disrupting.